Hello, I'm Mike LeCouture, and this is the West Block podcast for Sunday, June 10th. On this Sunday, progressive agenda trumped. The G7 summit gets sidetracked with world leaders trying to prevent the U.S. president from starting a global trade war. Then, Ontario is now Ford Nation. Doug Ford has been handed a majority government. Now where will the brash businessman take Canada's most populous province? And the summit in Singapore. President Trump will be meeting North Korean leader Kim Jong-un. Is it all just a big show? We'll look at that ahead. But first, this weekend was supposed to be all about the environment, gender equality, global growth and prosperity for the middle class. Important issues in each of the G7 countries, or at least six of them. The G7 leaders' agenda in Charlevoix, Quebec, was quickly hijacked by punitive tariffs imposed by the U.S. on countries that are supposed to be allies. It was the first time the leaders were all in the same room since the tariffs were imposed. Our chief political correspondent, David Aiken, is covering the G7 summit. Now, David, how much did this overshadow the original agenda? Absolutely overshadow things, Mike. You know, Trump just did not seem interested in the topics Trudeau chose for this summit. We know that Trump left early. He had to go to Singapore for the North Korean meeting, but that meant he missed the discussions about Trudeau's favorite subjects, climate change, clean energy, ocean health. All Trump wanted to do here was talk about his own favorite topic, trade. And on trade, Trump was as defiant as I've seen him. Trump threatened that any country that does not do what Trump wants on trade, Trump is ready to cut that country off completely from trade with America. Now, Trump, Trudeau, and the other G7 leaders all say the relationships are as strong as ever. But on key economic and policy issues, it's pretty clear this is now the G6 plus one, Mike. Well, thanks very much for that, David. And joining me right now from Charlevoix, Quebec, is Finance Minister Bill Morneau. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, let's get right into it. You've just spent the weekend meeting with your international counterparts. Has there been any progress in terms of trying to convince the U.S. to drop the tariffs on steel and aluminum? Well, Mike, what I can tell you is that any time we get together, having discussions is an important step. I can't say that we've made uh, progress, but I think we've clearly communicated our point of view to, to the president as well as uh, the point of view from, from the other G7 countries. And we, uh, we hope that through that we've uh, not only defended Canadians' interests but made, made some progress against our goal of, of getting this uh, tariff rolled back. Another way that you were fighting against this is the tariffs, the reciprocal tariffs. You met with re representatives from Canadian steel and aluminum industry last week. They told you they wanted those dollar-for-dollar -dollar tariffs on American metals now. Why aren't we doing that? Why are we waiting a full month before imposing our own tariffs? We want to make sure that we uh, get this right. As you know, our tariffs have been uh, on steel, but also on other products. We need to ensure that we have the desired impact. We were, as you saw, very ready in terms of what we wanted to do, but we, we need a couple of week uh, consultation process. That's important. So getting this right is, is, is critical for a, for a responsible way to, to move forward. We do believe that this process will allow us to to express very clearly to the United States what we're doing, the impact it will have, and gives us an opportunity to try and convince them to roll back what they're doing. We think that's a prudent way of taking this approach. But with respect, Minister, I mean, you had the representatives from steel and aluminum in Ottawa saying there is absolutely no reason not to do the tariffs on steel and aluminum right away. Match them dollar for dollar. How they hit us, we hit them. Why not do that? 
Well, with respect, in fact, the way we've taken this, we've we've have identified specific categories of steel and aluminum. You've seen that. We've also identified a number of other categories. We want to get this right. We don't want to uh, shoot first and aim later. We want to make sure that it has the desired impact. And our approach is to go through, uh, go through these consultations so that we can ensure we get it right. I was very clear with the uh, with the steel uh, industry folks that we saw that we've uh, very seriously looked at what we're going to do. We are taking this extremely seriously from their perspective, and uh, we're working to make sure that we we not only get the tariffs right, but that we actually get to the broader goal, which is to move back into a reasonable trading position with our largest trading partner. This is the approach that we've taken because we believe it's the right way to actually try and negotiate that uh, come down for them. Uh, Minister, conventional wisdom would say that bullies respond to people pushing back. Are you worried that if you push back too hard that it'll just escalate into an all-out trade war? What you've seen from uh, Canada, but from the other G7 countries, is that we've we've been firm. We've been very clear that we are uh, pushing back on the American approach. We've done it in a way that's targeted, not only uh, on the same sort of products, but also on some other product categories that are going to clearly exert pressure on the United States. This is, we think, a calibrated approach to. Uh, responding that will, uh, in our estimation, have uh, an impact that can get us back to the table. I've seen from the other G7 countries similar sorts of approaches. Uh, not all of them have worked through exactly what they're going to do, but we are seeing that, uh, that others are taking approaches that are equally uh, appropriate in our mind, uh, ensuring that the Americans can see how seriously we take this and that, you know, this is just not a state of affairs that makes any sense for citizens in the United States or in Canada or for that matter in other countries. Uh, we're going to keep working on this. We think dialogue is important, but we've been very clear that we're going to respond in kind. Now, you also mentioned that we do have our own self-imposed consultations on these tariffs. They end at the end of this week. What is the next step after that? I would be happy to have my uh, my colleague uh, Christy Freeland talk about the exact steps that we're going through. But from here, we're doing these consultations in order to make sure we get it right so that we can move forward and get these, uh, these tariffs done appropriately. What we're also doing in the background is trying to convince the American administration to move back from these tariffs. So that's, that's going on uh, not only here, but obviously with, with anybody that we can meet with in the administration. I had the opportunity to meet with Larry Kudlow to express our point of view. And I'm in regular communication with my counterpart, Stephen Mnuchin, the Treasury Secretary. We're going to keep pushing on all fronts. And uh, the tariffs are, of course, an, an integral part of that. That's a way we hope to, to move forward and express to the Americans that this, this approach, which is to target their own allies with tariffs, is, is not constructive. And, you know, Mike, that's the only way we believe that we can move forward at this stage. Okay, I just wanted to switch the pipelines. That's a little more in your wheelhouse. Uh, we are buying that pipeline. It is Plan B. Plan A, though, was to sell the pipeline before August. Have you found a new buyer yet? You don't actually have Plan A and Plan B in the right order. What I'll tell you our key issue here is that we want to ensure that this pipeline gets built. That's been our goal from day one. The reason we find ourselves here is, frankly, because the proponent, Kinder Morgan, couldn't resolve political discourse between two provinces that was going in the bad direction. So we've said, for us, what we need to do to ensure the project goes forward is to de-risk it. Now we're at a stage where first goal is to make sure the project gets built. 
we are interested in moving it back into the private sector. We'll do that only as long as we can meet that first goal, getting it de-risked, ensuring it actually gets done. Our goal, of course, is to have that happen as soon as possible, but not so soon that we don't actually meet that goal. So, Mike, the process of looking right now at, at potential alternatives is, uh, is one part of the process, but we're also considering how we assure that the project gets done. And speaking of getting it done, you did indicate in that press conference last week that you wanted construction to resume in June. Has it started yet or are we getting to the point that shovels are back in the ground? We actually, literally, the day we uh, announced that, we got back to the table with all of the firms that are intended to be doing that construction. So. I'm not up to date on whether there's actually people working in the field, but what I can tell you is we started that very first day to get the to get it all prepared, to get whether it's the contracts or or to get the the actual material so we can actually get back to work. So what I can assure you is that that is now happening, that this summer is seeing the work. It's if if it's not already started, it's starting very shortly. And that's exactly what we needed to do and to ensure that we didn't lose a season on the building of this pipeline, which we know is going to have big impacts, big positive impacts on our economy, up to $15 billion a year, and jobs, you know, up to 15,000 jobs in British Columbia and Alberta and across the country. So, so that work is important, and it gets us one step closer to actually getting the pipeline built. And so just in closing here, I wanted to know, who is paying for that phase of the construction this summer, and how much will it be costing? Because I know that's one of the difficult issues here. The government, your government, has never said how much the construction of the new pipeline is going to cost. The approach we took was we recognized that while we uh, agreed to the, uh, the transaction last week, that it takes a little while for these transactions to close, a few months. Obviously, uh, Kinder Morgan has to go through a shareholder vote. Uh, there's approvals that need to happen. So what we did was we guaranteed the construction season. So it's actually the, uh, the company that's moving forward on the construction with our guarantee. And in terms of the long-term construction costs, uh, we looked at a range of, of construction costs in our due diligence to make sure that it was a, a good deal for Canadians. Uh, the uh, proponent had not actually updated those construction costs, so that's something that we're not, uh, we're not yet, yet ready to talk about. What I can tell you is that on all the, uh, the review that we did through the due diligence, we're confident this is a, not only a, a good deal for the Canadian economy and a good deal for jobs, but also actually a good deal for Canada in terms of creating value. So we're, we're looking forward to uh, being able to, to share that over time, but now is not the time. Well, we are going to have to leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us, Minister Morneau. Okay, thank you. Thanks very much, Mike. A big win for Ford Nation in Ontario late last week as Doug Ford's Progressive Conservative Party now holds the majority with the NDP as the official opposition. Now, what does this mean for Canada's most populous province and the new direction it's about to take? And joining me now is the re-elected PC MPP member, Lisa McLeod. Thanks very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So 12 years now as the MPP for that area here in the suburbs of Ottawa, many people saying you're going to be in cabinet. Ah. So question is, any preference and have you heard anything yet? 
Well, you know what? There's a transition team that's been appointed, and my predecessor, John Baird, happens to be on that team, and his former chief of staff, Chris Froggett, uh, is, uh, is, is leading that. So they'll take the time over the next 21 days uh, to put in place the transition plans, including what the cabinet will look like, and Doug Ford will make those determinations, decisions, and, of course, make those announcements. So, uh, you know, it's all above my pay grade at this point. <laughs> uh, something that, unfortunately, the party was criticized a lot for during the campaign was not releasing a costed platform. What do you say to people who thought that you guys were hiding something? Look, as a former finance critic and Treasury Board critic and somebody who used to sit on the Public Accounts Committee, I can tell you full well that the Auditor General and the Independent Financial um, Accountability Officer, both independent officers of the Ontario Legislature, said that the numbers that the Liberals have been presenting weren't true, uh, meaning that uh, the Liberals had said there was a $6 billion deficit when in actuality there was a $12 billion deficit. So we decided that we would uh, make some modest commitments, uh, roll them out throughout the campaign, and wait until we saw what the actual books were. So uh, we feel confident that we can um, we can deliver the modest uh, uh, proposals that we put forward. And uh, in the next couple of days, we're going to be able to look at those books, bring in a team of outside auditors as well to go line by line to make sure we can, we can look at where there has been any waste, mismanagement or scandal. But as the former finance critic and treasury board critic, wouldn't you also have some insight into that and at least have an idea? Because we went through a whole campaign having no idea how much all the promises you guys made would cost. Yeah, we're going to have to see those books, and only the Liberals know the true value of those books. But those books. are your promises, though. Forget yeah. about the Liberals' books. These yeah. are your promises. In order for us to pay for those commitments and to and to um, put forward any other uh, platform um, commitments, we would have to know what, what, what the true financial state of the province is. We simply don't know, and uh, you don't have to take my word for it. The Auditor General and the Financial Accountability Officer have also disputed uh, the government's numbers, so we have to get in there over the next 21 days. Uh, we have to bring some change to, to Ontario. And we made some modest commitments that we plan on delivering. One of those commitments was also to run deficits uh, for possibly two years. No clear timeline on returning back to balanced budgets. Why not? Uh, Doug Ford has uh, made it clear that he hopes that we'll be in year three, and if not, year four. But we will put forward a credible plan back to balance um, once we get a sense of what the books actually look like in the province of Ontario. Uh, Liberals have been cooking them for some time now. Um, and we believe that there are probably some systemic uh, uh, deficit areas, uh, uh, stru structural mm -hmm. uh, deficit areas. So we're going to have to look at those and, and get a true sense. And that's why we want to bring in a team of auditors. Um, in addition, you know, he'll have an opportunity in the next couple of weeks to appoint a Treasury Board minister and a finance minister. And, uh, and those individuals will have a, a department to back up uh, the work that they're doing. You know how this looks a little bit because the Conservatives on the federal side have been criticizing Justin Trudeau for no exact timeline on returning to balanced books. Now, these same people who have either been running for you or helping you in your campaign are seemingly fine with not with no real deadline on returning back to balance? Yeah, well, we've said hopefully year three that will happen. Let's get, let, let us, it's only been uh, a couple of days since we've been elected. Doug Ford's not yet been sworn in yet. We don't yet have a cabinet appointed. Um, give us some time to take a look at those books. Let us bring in those outside auditors. Let us work with the independent um, auditor general. Let's restore some of her powers and get a true sense of what the books are of the largest province in, in Canada. I wanted to move towards the environment because at some point in this campaign, a, a lot of people have thought, well, Doug Ford doesn't seem like a friend of the environment. Uh, undoing the carbon tax, undoing the cap and trade system will reduce gas prices in the province by 10 cents a litre. So one would think that gas consumption will only go up. Uh, what is the plan to battle climate change in this province? Yeah, well, Doug's acknowledged that climate change is man-made, um, but we reject the notion that a carbon tax imposed by Ottawa um, and the federal government uh, have to be careful there because 
because I live in Ottawa, yeah. and, and uh, but the, but imposed by the federal government, um, and that goes into only general revenues, not into specific environmental programs. Uh, does nothing to um, to help clean up the environment. What we have said instead is we'll have stiffer penalties for polluters. We'll make sure that those who are are polluting um, are held to account, and that's not always the case right now. So we do have mechanisms in Ontario um, in order to do that, and that's what we'd mm -hmm. like to do. In terms of the cost, what about of gas, people, what about people are saying that's not hard enough, that's not tough enough on the environment because we're in a day and age where we need to be acting on this. Well, look, this is a Liberal government that that, that brought in the single largest uh, sales tax increase in Ontario's history with the HST. I know, but I'm, I'm, ta I'm talking about the environment, though. Yeah, on the environment, yeah, but what I, about your plan on yeah, the environment? But I'm just, I just want to finish with this point because I think it's important to see where the money goes rather than it going into environmental programs. It's the, the Liberals were doing exactly what they did with the health tax, which was the single largest income tax increase in the province's history. It didn't go into hospitals. It went into uh, general revenues. The same thing with the um, HST. It went into general revenues. The same thing happened with their cap-and-trade program and, uh, and a carbon tax going into general revenues. Kathleen Wynne admitted herself that uh, that the carbon tax of the cap-and-trade program in Ontario was actually paying for um, political institutions rather than uh, fighting fighting um, for a cleaner environment. So we've been pretty clear. We're going to stiffen the penalties. Um, we'll have more to say on it uh, in, in the days and weeks ahead of, as we have somebody appointed to the environment mm -hmm. ministry. Um, but these are early days, and we remain committed uh, to making sure that life is more affordable for the people of Ontario. Okay, thank you very much for that, Lisa McLeod. Unfortunately, you. we have to go. Uh, Lisa McLeod, MPP for the Progressive Conservative Party. I think I'm very well prepared. I don't think I have to prepare very much. It's about uh, attitude. It's about uh, willingness to get things done. But I think I've been preparing for the summit for a long time, as has the other side. That was President Trump late last week on his upcoming trip to Singapore, where he will meet with the North Korean leader Kim Jong-un. Now, this is the first time a sitting American president has met with the North Korean leader, and a lot is on the table as the leaders set the stage for talks to denuclearize the Korean peninsula. Expectations are high, but are they too high? Joining me now from Washington is someone who has sat at the negotiating table with the North Koreans, Mickey Bergman, Vice President, Vice President rather, of the Richardson Center. Mr. Bergman, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Well, you've successfully negotiated the release of prisoners from North Korea, but back in March, you said, quote, you understand the thinking process in North Korea better than you understand how the White House comes to decisions. Uh, what did you mean by that? And also, how frightening is that just days before this summit in Singapore? Well, it, it is quite a, it was frightening for me to realize it. Um, I think what, what I said and, and what I meant by it, and it still stands true, the North Koreans and the North Korean leader, even though we like to, to call them irrational and crazy, are extremely rational people, uh, all the way from the leader down to the, uh, to the whole chain of command over there. They're, the way they view reality is a little different than ours. So what goes into their calculation is different than what we assume. But the calculation is very, very rational and it's very, very processed, something that is a little harder uh, uh, to claim about the White House these days. Uh, okay, so we know what the West wants and what the White House is looking for in all of this. What does Kim Jong-un want from this meeting? Well, I think, uh, first of all, Kim Jong-un already got a lot of what he wanted before the, the meeting even took place. And it's important to realize, even though it feels like a roller coaster to all of us, 
we have a meeting, we don't have a meeting, he's a little rocket man or, or he's a respectable uh, leader. All that roller coaster, if we tune that out uh, of, our, of our ears, the fundamentals uh, have not changed in decades. The North Korean proposal that, has, that is on the table now is the same one that they had before in front of previous uh, American presidents, and they always wanted to meet the American president. As you mentioned before, former um, American presidents said no. They said, we will meet if we have a deal. Uh, president Clinton sent Secretary Albright over there, but the president himself in the past has never accepted it. Donald Trump did. Now, I have to admit, personally, I think it's a good idea to meet. I think that establishing, establishing the personal relations between the two of them is going to be very, very significant. What I worry about is whether Donald Trump actually is willing to sit and dive into the substance of this, because the North Koreans have not moved an inch in what the proposition they have on the table is. Uh, to that end, your colleague and well-known North Korea negotiator, Governor Bill Richardson, has said people in North Korea always think that they are right. Now, is that a recipe for disaster ahead of this meeting with a president who also thinks that he's always right? Well, it depends. It depends on what the goal of the two leaders are. I think the summit will be successful in all likelihood because both leaders need it. On Kim's side, he's proven to his people, look, I've achieved nuclear deterrence against the United States and against the rest of the world, and this is why I have the President of the United States willing to meet with me. If you want evidence of what happened to him, he met with the South Korean leader twice, he met with the Chinese premier twice, the Russian prime minister came to visit. He is now on the, on the global stage as a leader of a nuclear power, and not only that, in the position of the peace seeker. So Kim Jong-un is very, very happy already with the, the results that he's gotten. Now, President Trump, on his, on his end, has showed multiple times how he's, uh, he's passionate about this, he needs this, whether it's a Nobel Prize or whether it's a president of doing something that no other president has done. Now, all of these are good, in my opinion, because let them meet. The question again becomes, after that meeting, um, and I can talk to you about, if we, if we think about what a successful meeting will be uh, for both of these leaders, it will have three components. One a lofty joint statement about denuclearization of the peninsula and the world, whatever it is, uh, it will be a feel-good one. Uh, it will have no legs, no time frame, no mechanism for implementation, but it's important. It establishes an intention. Number two is the key one. It's going to be that one of substance. They will announce, probably, hopefully, a two or three-year length of process of framed negotiations that President Trump can call and probably will call denuclearization. In fact, it will be freeze for freeze to begin with and potentially a medium-term, long-term uh, uh, agreement that the two sides can agree. But make no mistake about it, the North Koreans are not going to disarm their existing arsenal. They might be willing to give up the further proliferation, uh, development, testing of nuclear and ballistic missiles, but they will not disarm. This is the reason why they believe the president has met with them, having that nuclear capability. And the third part of, the, uh, of a successful summit will be uh, uh, tangible humanitarian gestures of goodwill, whether it's unification of families or what I hope to do to have their, uh, uh, I work in with Governor Richardson, is the return of American remains. There are 5,300 sets of remains of American soldiers still in North Korea from the war. We have very little time now, so I just wanted to ask if you had one piece of advice to give President Trump ahead of this meeting, what would it be? 
I, I would say, and it's hard, uh, be patient. The formal part of these negotiations are always harsh. Therefore, for the record, um, let that roll over your head, say your piece, but establish a relationship out of the formalities. Go on a walk, go have a meal, go play golf if that's something that, that Kim might be willing to do. Establish that personal relations, that's where the deals will be made. Okay, thanks very much for that. Mickey Bergman from the Richardson Center joining us from Washington. I'm Michael Couture. Thank you for listening to the West Block Podcast. For more, go to our website, thewestblock.ca. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And tune in again next week for another West Block Podcast.